Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Samuel Moyne, last name spelled M-O-Y-N. And we talked back in August 2021 about a book he published in September 2021 titled Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. Fascinating book. But today we're going to talk about a book he wrote back in 2018. The title is Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And he's also written some other books. His first book, I think, is The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, published 2012. Also, Human Rights and the Uses of History, 2014. He's written Christian Human Rights, which is an intellectual history of the modern age, 2015, and The Right to Have Rights in 2018. But this is a very interesting book, the history of human rights, but also uh, human rights and equality as well. So we can talk about some of those issues. So, Professor Samuel Moyne, are you there? Yes, good to be awesome. with you again. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Can you talk kind of, you have just a lot of knowledge about human rights, human rights history. We talked about it last time. Can you kind of talk about that kind of background and what led you to write Not Enough Human Rights in an Unequal World? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, I wrote a, a first book about the history of human rights back in 2010 and I, where I realized that um, I had, you know, left some things out, maybe not, not stressed some things enough. And in particular, I realized that even though I wrote that book in 2008, you know, nine, it came out in 2010, it, I, I, I kind of wasn't taking seriously the financial crisis um, that happened right as I was, you know, trying to figure out where human rights came from. And, you know, from a broader perspective, I thought it would be interesting both to, you know, think about the relation between our most basic moral ideas and the history of, of economics on the one hand, and like what, what people have thought about, you know, fair distribution on the other. Um, and so at first I thought, the book I would write was going to be a sequel because um, the last utopia only went up to about 1980. But because I wanted to kind of rethink the whole history, I decided to, you know, just start over, go back to the beginning and in a sense, rewrite the book um, from scratch. And this is what came out. Right. So this is kind of one where you're really kind of talking about human rights, but also in the context of wealth distribution your intro makes the point that eight men controlled more than half of the world's population. So there's distribution is, I think, obviously unfair. Um, can you kind of talk about where that kind of concept, why right. human rights and equality sometimes aren't considered in the same sentence? Absolutely. So, you know, for, for a few decades, I think a lot of people have thought of human rights as sort of the highest and most important values there are. And at the same time, across the same last few decades, we've seen global inequality, um, you know, remain sky high. You know, the most important fact about every human being is what patch of ground they're born on, because it determines most about the way they'll live. And in some countries, including the United States, the last few decades have been um, ones where inequality has risen a very great deal, especially 
through the ascent of the 1% in relation to the rest. And so basically what I wanted to try to figure out is what does it say about us that, you know, human rights are our morality in the era of the victory of the rich um, and retell, you know, where human rights came from to get to that endpoint, our present, when we have these noble moral ideals, but um, they may not have much to say about inequality, both at a global and national scale. Right. So um, you traced kind of the original welfare. You talk about the welfare state or sufficiency. You trace back to the French Revolution, correct? Right. So I'll just say um, I work with a big dichotomy in the book between two different moral ideals. And you could adopt one or neither or both. Um, the, the first is you called what you, you know, refer to as sufficiency. And it's the idea that morality requires that we get all of our fellow citizens or humans to some basic level, like a threshold level, um, uh, uh, when it comes to all of the good things in life, like maybe everyone should have housing and food and sanitation. Um, and that it's, a, it's an idea that says, let's find a line of entitlement um, that to that, that um, and, and our, 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 our morality is about bringing everyone up to it. Um, and that's, you know, that's new in a sense. Um, but so is this other ideal, which in contrast to sufficiency, we call equality. And um, that has to do with like the whole distributional curve sufficiency is about what happens to the poor without regard to what's happening to everyone else but the rest of the the rest of the kind of you know distributional curve in our societies matters too it could involve the middle class stagnating even if they've got the basic decencies it could involve the rich taking off which is what actually occurred and equality is about having at least some expectations that we don't live in, in a sense, two separate societies for the rich and the rest, even if the poor are better off. And that's kind of like what's gone on in our time, both in our country and globally, that the poor have gotten better off and we've done something for sufficiency, but it's come at the very time that we've eroded equality and the rich have done even better than the poor and really much better than everyone else in the whole society. And so the question is, what do human rights, you know, have to do with this outcome? And so you're right. I go back and I start actually before the French revolution, um, because it's sort of interesting to ask where did these two ideals come from before modern times? And we find people, you know, way back in the history of the West to say things like, well, we need a threshold, um, you know, and, and, we, and we, should, we should get rid of the poor if we can, even though the Bible tells us it will never happen, that we'll ever fully end poverty. And then there were also radical egalitarians um, 
who, you know, thought things like, you know, when they were serious Christians, um, like we should have equality, even if it's equality in poverty, it's more important for us all to be equal than for us to have for, for anyone to get out of poverty. So, you know, all of this came before modern times, but I start with the French revolution because it's the first time when there's, there's a project um, of creating a state that will provide all citizens, both the basic necessities and some modicum of um, distributive equality. So the idea was in the French revolution, uh, especially in the latter part of it under the Jacobins, um, that they announced economic and social rights. They're the first people to say every citizen has a right to education. Every citizen has a right to public relief, as they called it, what we would call welfare, um, so that they're not too poor. But they also cared about controlling the rich and making sure there were not vast inequalities. And it only lasted a short time, but it was kind of like the dry run for the 20th century attempt after World War II, especially to create welfare states that both got people out of poverty and controlled inequality. Right. So that goes all the way back there. And it wasn't always equally just these kind of rights and stuff that from France wasn't equally distributed throughout the world. It stayed oh, with no. France. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, th this was the, in, in comes in the middle of the, the, the centuries long period when Europeans were gobbling up the whole planet for their own empires. And they by no means treated, um, people in their empires uh, to the same moral norms. So it was very crucial that from the beginning, um, welfare states were for nations, um, not empires, let alone humanity. And so you, you have um, in the 20th century, this is a scary thing, but um, not just communists, but fascists believe in the welfare state and Hitler Adolf Hitler comes to power in 1933 and, you know, raises the corporate tax rate and tries to provide equality for Germans. Now, that didn't include Jews, obviously. So his problem was that his was a welfare state for like the racial nation. Um, but someone across the water like Franklin Roosevelt uh, wanted to create a welfare state for Americans. Uh, we now see that he excluded black people uh, from the, you know, the very basic, you know, steps towards a welfare state that Franklin Roosevelt took after World War II. The GI Bill was for whites. And so what's kind of amazing is that um, it's really important that people tolerated more equality when they could exclude people. Um, and that was true from the beginning. And it's such a big problem today um, because some people, I don't agree with this, but some people have charged that we can never get a welfare state if we have too heterogeneous a society because people won't pay for others uh, if they don't feel that they're there, that they're kind of on their team. 
Right. And it's it, that that means for anyone who believes in like distributive fairness, either sufficiency or equality, it's it's a there's a challenge. Like, how do you actually get people to commit to it when their citizens become unlike them, different religions, different races, when women are emancipated and get to be treated equally with men? Well, what if, you know, that that means that they can enter the workforce but poor women are are not are 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 not being um, treated to the same kind of welfare state as working class men got in the middle of the 20th century. Right, and I mean all that stuff is really that's all salient questions for today too. Right. But yeah, so so I mean uh, Roosevelt really after what 33 uh, comes yeah. into power and yeah. really tries to facilitate this kind of a much more equitable uh, society, yeah. correct? He does. I mean, he he comes in and he's, uh, although, a you know, an aristocrat of sorts himself from a very wealthy old family, he turns on his class and he indicts bankers who did, in, did bring the whole, not just the United States, but the world into the Great Depression. Uh, and... And when Roosevelt comes in, he's thinking very radically. Um, his first hundred days are famous because he passes 15 bills with a Congress that's democratic. It's it's almost like the opposite of Biden uh, to Joe Biden today, who barely has a majority in Congress. Um, FDR could do a lot and he did a lot. His trouble was the Supreme Court, which took the first New Deal and basically invalidated it as unconstitutional, um, setting up a big struggle. Um, and, you know, FDR kept trying things. He was kind of an experimenter. Um, the truth is that in part because the Supreme Court destroyed his first attempts, um, not all of them, but, you know, the centerpiece called the National Industrial Recovery Act, FDR kind of by the time that was all through um he was almost ready to get us into world war ii and it was really the war that saved the united states from the great depression finally um which came back in 1937 and the the moral of the story i think is that you know fdr was trying to um kind of create an american welfare state just as was happening in the midst of the same kind of depression and industrial conflict across the Atlantic in Europe under fascist circumstances or under communist circumstances all the way east in the new Soviet Union. And so he tried hard. By the end of his life, um, it was really the war that enriched the United States and accounted for a moderation of inequality. So if you look at the data on inequality in the United States, it it, it is incredibly high in the first Gilded Age um, leading up through the 20s and the Great Depression. And then in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, it contracts. And that's when in, in modern times, um, there's most class equality in the United States. Part of the reason is the, the, the rich are paying huge taxes at the levels of like 80, 90% of their incomes. 
Um, and today that would be insane. You know, Joe Biden can barely raise the income tax above like 30 odd percent. Um, and, you know, this era of equality, like a golden age of growth with equality is what doesn't last into our time. Um, and yet FDR ha had some, a big role in bringing it about along with a lot of other factors. Right. So he brings it about the war happens. And then you have this age of, of kind of opening the home ownership, financial kind of equality. Right. I mean, considering there are obviously racial classes that didn't get. Sure. The, can you also talk about that time? Like you mentioned the, um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights often in right. the book. That was 1948. Can you explain yeah. that to the audience? Yeah, sure. So one of the big debates about the history of human rights is how we interpret the fact that after World War II, there's not just the United Nations, but the United Nations um, kind of produces this thing called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. It's passed by the General Assembly, which at that point is 58 states before most of decolonization. And um, it passes it in December uh, of that year. And, you know, it's generally been seen as like the beginnings of a movement to name and shame oppressive governments around the world where we identify with people far away and, you know, um, join Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch and, and kind of um, try to change the behavior of other states. And what I found is that um, the Universal Declaration is much better understood as, in a sense, about the renovation of citizenship for us at home in the middle of the 20th century, where we changed our expectation of states in, a, in the direction of the welfare state. And that's why it features these economic and social rights like the right to housing or health. Um, meanwhile, when human rights became a big cause, let's say looking abroad in the 1970s and since, it was mostly about civil liberties, like your right not to um, be fa falsely imprisoned or your right not to be tortured, but rarely if ever until very recently, your right you know, if you're poor or somewhere else, you know, to a, you know, to a house or to a modicum of, of, of social security or, you know, um, to a, um, you know, to, to food. The Universal Declaration even has a provision that guarantees a right to paid vacation, which has often struck people as funny because how could you, write down that people around the world in the worst circumstances imaginable have a right to a paid vacation. No wonder the human rights movement focused on free speech and, you know, freedom from torture. But if we put it back in its time, you know, unions and socialist parties across the Atlantic and in Latin America were battling precisely for workers' rights. Um, and for higher wages and for limited working hours and for paid vacations. Um, and America never got that far compared to the very generous welfare states of Scandinavia or of Western Europe, which do provide all of that. Um, 
But the point is that when we put the Universal Declaration back on it in its time, it's more about like the, the, the relatively rich states in the world and the new kind of citizenship at home that they thought they were creating for people and hopefully, you know, bringing um, kind of to, to the masses in a new era of prosperity and equality. Right. And so that you see the post-war happening, these changes, the welfare state takes over in the UK, the changes right. happen a lot. So there a lot of that focus kind of came back towards human beings, not just about their rights, but about their sufficiency as well. Right. And equality. So, and I equality. mean, you know, the, the, so that, you know, a good example is the UK better than the U S because remember Winston Churchill is booted out, even though he won world war II in 1945 and the labor party takes control for a few crucial years. And it does things like build the national health service. You know, we still have nothing like it. That's basically single payer healthcare. And the point I try to make is that in the UK, um, People say, yes, we're providing sufficiency in the form of basic health care, but we're not leaving the rich out either. We're bringing them down as even as we're bringing the poor up. And the basic goal is to not a classless society like they're claiming to create in, uh, in the Soviet Union and the, the new communist states in Eastern Europe. But it's a it's a class moderation project. So it's su about sufficiency together with equality. And the United Kingdom was a great example of that because they also contracted their inequality to unprecedented extents in this period of the 1940s through 60s. And that was kind of, I mean, you kind of write, I think, in the third chapter that that was a phenomenon that took place globally, right? So there well, was more it, of a focus. It, it did once. So the welfare state becomes like the highest prize. It's what everyone wants. There's just one problem that there are still these big empires. Uh, the U.S. had one. Remember, it decolonized the Philippines in 1945. Um, it's 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 involved in occupying West Germany for a while. But it's really the Brits and the French that are and the Dutch and the Portuguese that are holding on to uh, huge territories of the world, especially in Africa, for as long as they can. And what 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 people under imperial rule want is welfare. And it actually at first they say, well, we'll stay in your empire if you'll give us a welfare empire and give us equality you know across racial and religious lines but the brits don't the french don't the dutch don't the portuguese don't so even as the labor party is creating this welfare state it's just for people on the home islands uh not for india, india not right. for most of africa which the brits you know control so what happens is like most of the world says, okay, you're not giving us a welfare empire. We'll have to build our own welfare state. The trouble is they're poor. Once they get out of empire, they're poorer than before. And meanwhile, these, these North Atlantic countries are going gangbusters. I mean, this is the height of growth in the modern world between the forties and seventies. Uh, and the trouble is that decolonization made global inequality worse because 
there's a big divergence between the rich and the poor nations between the 1940s and 70s. So that kind of sets up the later part of the book because you have these people around the world basically saying, okay, we won political freedom, but it was kind of a raw deal because we may have had some growth of our own, but our old colonial masters got even richer. And so global inequality increased, even though uh, decolonization happened. Right. And that kind of, I don't know if that real, that change has really ever gone back even to 2021, has it? No, it has a little. So, you know, I, I narrate that, that that happens in, in our time. But first comes something really big and important that I dwell on in the middle of the book, which is um, that the global South basically says, okay, we, we can't create welfare states on our own with our level, you know, of, of wealth um, and with all of the legacies of imperialism. And so they say, we're going we're gonna to do those, you know, politicians of the North Atlantic like FDR and, uh, and, and, and his opposite numbers across the water one better. And we're going to call for a welfare world. They wouldn't give us welfare empire. We tried to get welfare states on our own. We can't have it. Uh, at least not easily. And so what if we have a w welfare at the level of the world where now we think of like the global north as the bosses and the global south as the workers and create a trade union of the global south in order to pressure the bosses to give us a better deal? They fail. Um, but, you know, the the result is kind of a paradox because the, the new form of openness that is often called globalization of the 80s and 90s enriches China hugely uh, and India a little bit. And so um, that global inequality, which had been expanding for centuries, even after decolonization, gets a little better in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but it's still the case, as I mentioned before, that like the world is incredibly unequal and the basic fact that distinguishes like cl class at a global scale is like, are you born in the North or the South? Because that's the main thing that we need to know to know what kind of life you have in this world. Yeah. It's really amazing. Like these, how these patterns have changed, but there's always that, that kind of like step two steps forward, yes. one step back, two yes. steps forward. China expands its population, increases its efficiency, human rights, yes. maybe not so much, but definitely not. I mean, they, they, you know, save more people from poverty than any agent in human history after they decide to marketize um, around 1980. Um, but it, it comes at a price. Um, they don't do that in the name of human rights, obviously and civil liberties they abuse routinely and think about the uyghurs today in western china who are in concentration camps but um they are with us in a, in from a different perspective because even as they've saved so many from poverty they've had their inequality grow faster than in any place in world history so they're like america doing better with poverty doing much worse with equality and seeing 
the creation of massive class difference. So as much as we might like to think that we're different from China and we are in so many respects, in this core respect about how the poor are getting better off, but the rich are winning, we're the same. Right. Yeah, it really is true. I mean, it's really a fascinating book and, uh, you know, follows on to your earlier book. Where's the best play? Is there anything you'd like to add or anything that I missed before we wrap up? Well, so the last part of the book is just about like in the end, how we think about um, this fact, um, which drove me to write the book that the age of human rights is the age of the victory of the rich. And what I concluded is that human rights um, get like um, taken out of their old welfare state context and they become about the worst kinds of suffering, you know, the terrible atrocities that are involved when basic civil liberties are denied. And a bit later about like the most minimal kinds of um, like decencies in life, but they, they, they lost any connection to the egalitarian ideal. And so in a sense, they survive in a time that is about making people less poor, even as the rich win. They help, they in a sense give us reasons why we should make people less poor because poor people need sufficient provision. But human rights end up giving us no reason why we should challenge the rich. And that makes them, let's say, um, fit in our time um, without really calling for you know, a, a big change, especially not for um, bringing the rich back into orbit um, so that they live in the same society as the rest of us. So that's how the book concludes. Right. And that's really true. They really live in a different tier. The one percenters, much different, much different legal access, healthcare access, all that stuff. Thanks so much for coming back, Sam. Again, the title of the book is Not Enough Human Rights in an Unequal World, published 2018. Thanks, Sam. Take care so much. All right. Take care. I got to run. All right. right. Thanks again, man. I got to take my mom.